hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ohio Huntsman Podcast with your hosts Jason, Jacob, and Jeff. And really excited to bring this episode to you guys. We talked to Mark Wiley from the Division of Wildlife, and Mark is a wildlife biologist for the Division of Wildlife, and he handles turkeys. So we talk all about turkeys. I learned a ton in this episode, one of which is during the fall turkey season, you can hunt with dogs. And I looked in the regs book, and it says right in the regs book that you can hunt with dogs, and so I'm assuming it's been there all along, and I just have not seen it. But uh, so we talk about that. We talk about why the season dates start when they do, why there's the northeast zone, how the line was developed or, or determined where that line between the northeast zone and the rest of the, the state was going to be, all kinds of interesting turkey facts, and things about turkey season that are maybe not unique to Ohio, but some of the questions I know I had about, you know, why does the season end at noon during the first part of the season, and uh, just those sorts of things. Why is there a fall season and a spring season? And we, we covered so much in this one, and so really excited about this episode. Tons of good information in here, so, so hopefully you enjoy it. Hopefully you learned something. Before we get into the episode, I want to talk to you about our sponsor. So, as you've probably heard, we're sponsored by Monster Whitetail Grub. And so it's spring. It's been raining a lot, uh, but it's a great time to be getting mineral out. So, Monster Whitetail Grub has a couple different products. They've got straight mineral, which, like I said, now's a good time to be getting your mineral out. They've got a high-protein feed, so it's a high-protein feed with, it's actually got mineral mixed in, so you can kind of get the best of both worlds there. And then they've got flavored corn options, tons of good product. We've been really happy with with everything we've tried from them so far, so you won't go wrong. If you're interested in trying some of their products, they're an Ohio product, not an Ohio product, it is an Ohio product, but it, they're an Ohio company that gets their product from all Ohio sources. So you're not only supporting your deer, but you're also, and supporting the Ohio Huntsman podcast, but you're also supporting the Ohio economy. So lots of good benefits all around. So if you're interested in trying some of their stuff, check out the show notes. That's the easiest way for me to direct you to them and get in touch with them. But you can also just reach out to them on Facebook, Monster Whitetail Grub. Instagram, same thing, Monster Whitetail Grub. But there'll be a link right in the show notes, take you right to their Facebook page, and you can send them a message and get you all the details that you need. So with that, this is uh, coming right down to the wire here. This is uh, Monday night, and the episode's supposed to go live tomorrow. It's been, uh, we've had sickness sort of <laughs> roll through the house here. So, uh... Things have been, have been a little behind with uh, getting the episode ready. So hopefully you guys enjoy the episode. And without further ado, we're going to switch over to the call with Mark. All right. We've got Mark Wiley from the Division of Wildlife on the, on the line here. And uh, we're going to talk turkeys. So first, Mark, I want to thank you for staying late today and taking time to talk to us. Really appreciate that. It's my pleasure. And uh, so we've also got Jeff on the line, 
And, Mark, why don't we start off with a little bit of your background. Give the listeners a little bit of your your history and how it is uh, that you came to be a wildlife biologist for the Division of Wildlife. Certainly, yeah. So I'm, uh, I grew up in central Ohio, Union County, um, farm boy, so I've always sort of had that outdoors itch, um, always interested in hunting, uh, although as we'll talk about later, uh, I'm sure uh, Union County was one of the last to, to have wild turkeys show up uh, in the state, and so I never really had much experience with wild turkey. Um as I got into college and uh, uh, pursued wildlife biology and then eventually a master's degree, I had specific interest in game birds. Um, did my master's work in southwest Ohio on northern Bob White. And then uh, shortly thereafter, hired by the Division of Wildlife as a research biologist and worked with uh, upland game birds, ringneck pheasant, northern Bob White. And then uh, through sort of some... Uh, vacancies and opportunities, I, I was able to, to uh, move into the forest game bird world and currently work with wild turkey, rough grouse, and American woodcock. Okay. That was going to be one of my follow-up questions, is if you if you only focus on turkeys or if you if you handle other species, and you went ahead and answered that. So, <laughs> All right. So that's a little bit of your background. So I guess the listeners know this, but I guess – for your knowledge, you know, we're, uh, Jacob's not on the call, but the three of us, we're three brothers, we grew up in Ohio, hunting Ohio. We spent a lot of time hunting in, uh, southeast Ohio in the Wayne National Forest and grew up hunting with our dad and that sort of led us down this path, down on, on this journey, if you will. And so, I guess speaking of journeys, could you give us a little, a little history I guess a little history lesson on the uh, reintroduction of turkeys to Ohio. How did that all play out and just whatever kind of interesting factoids you could share with us? Yeah, certainly. So uh, wild wild turkey reintroduction in Ohio and other states where it was extirpated um, has been a tremendous success story. Uh, so to, to rewind a little bit, I guess, through the mid to late 1800s, Ohio had fairly good turkey numbers, a heavily forested state. Um, of course, we were clearing forest at that time, uh, but we had pretty liberal turkey seasons, uh, mostly fall and winter seasons, and they ranged from 80 to 150 days and essentially no bag limit. Uh, okay. So that carried on into around 1900, turkey numbers dropping pretty steadily as forests were cleared and, and we had that fairly liberal harvest. And uh, by 1911, wild turkey were considered extirpated within Ohio, so absent from the state of Ohio. Uh, okay. That's largely been attributed to the loss of forest. I mean, we, we cleared the majority of Ohio's forest for agriculture and other uses uh, by that time. So tur wild turkey really didn't have any habitat remaining in the state. But it's likely that liberal harvest and, and possibly some illegal harvest uh, contributed to that that loss in the state of Ohio. Uh, through the 1920s and 30s, there were a few attempts to reintroduce turkey to the state, and, and principally at that time they used captive uh, turkey. They looked like wild turkey, but they weren't really wild turkey, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and that's largely because wild birds were unavailable. There, there, there wasn't a strong population to go and, and, and get birds elsewhere and move them into the state of Ohio. Uh, there, there's pretty poor records on how many of those birds were released during that time. But as we got into the 1950s, uh, the State Wildlife Agency did did keep fairly good records of captive birds that were purchased from eastern states, uh, even a few from the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Again, these looked like wild turkeys, but were really raised in captivity. Um, and a few of the notes from biologists at that time, they, they just say they had some evidence of domestic traits, whatever that means. Okay. Uh, but most, mostly in the behavior of the birds. The birds really weren't wary of people or, or we could assume predators, uh, which is pretty important for the survival of turkeys in the wild. So anyway, at, at that time we released uh, nearly 2,000 of these birds uh, in the 1950s to try to get birds going in Ohio again. That was that was almost a complete failure. And then uh, we did a, about a five-year analysis of of that decision uh, to to use those captive birds and, and decided to end that effort and again go to neighboring states and and, so, and seek sources of wild birds. Fortunately. Uh, in 1956 into the early 60s, we did uh, we we got uh, we had agreements with other states, West Virginia, uh, Texas, Kentucky, Arkansas. Um, I think a lot of the birds came from Missouri, uh, but we got about 150 wild birds at that time, and they were brought into the state of Ohio and released in some of the best forest habitat that we could find, principally in southeast Ohio. Vinton County was one of the first at the time. I, uh, it's what now is Denton Furnace State Forest. That was one of the first wild turkey releases in the state. Okay. And, uh, fortunately, those wild birds, that was tremendously successful, and those birds uh, took off and, and did very well. Um, and from that point, those, those strong populations that developed, we were able, the Division of Wildlife, the, the State Wildlife Agency was uh, able to capture birds within Ohio and then move them around uh, to different areas of the state. Um, interestingly, biologists at the time thought that we would really only ever have turkeys in southeast Ohio, the most heavily forested portion of the state. The turkeys kind of proved us wrong, and they moved into all these areas, all these areas that uh, agricultural areas and so forth, places that we really didn't think they would do very well. Uh, so with that information, we ended up moving turkeys from uh, 1960 to the, the late 2000s. We moved about 5,000 turkeys uh, during that time, and we hit 85 of the 88 counties. We really only left out a few of the, the most heavily developed counties, Lake and Hamilton and Cuyahoga, I believe. Okay. okay. Again, those translocations were tremendously successful. And when you're doing those, uh, moving those birds from one county to another, how many birds are you taking at a time in general? Uh, they were they were winter trapping using either cannon nets or drop nets, so they would try to get a flock of turkeys in on a bait pile okay. and net them all at once. Uh, so they were moving uh, anywhere. I mean, I, I think they were taking anything they could get, uh, but they were any, moving anywhere from a, a few birds to, you know, two dozen. Um, uh, whatever they caught at that at that specific trapping uh, event, and then they had set locations, 
and don't ask me to recite all the, the, <laughs> the counties and numbers they got. I get that question all the time. Well, how many did Union County get, or how many did Franklin County get? And, uh, every, as I mentioned, 85 counties got birds. Uh, as far as we can tell, all of those releases were tremendously successful. Uh, wild turkey survival, at least for adult birds, is, is pretty high, even even with translocation. And at this point, uh, we've got we've got wild turkey in all 88 counties in Ohio. Well, that's uh, like you said, definitely a success story. I know, uh, you know, not just in Ohio, but but sort of nationally, right? The the bringing the wild turkey back has has been a tremendous success, and so just good to hear that history and sort of how things played out here locally. So, I guess so. Now let's. Uh, if you will, let's let's sort of transition into present day and how are numbers trending today? And I guess a follow-up to that before you answer that is how do you guys monitor turkey numbers? Yeah, so we, we've got a few uh, sort of indices that we use. Uh, principally, spring harvest is a great indicator of turkey numbers. Uh, our spring harvest pressure is fairly constant, which is important if you're going to use harvest as a, a population metric. Um, but we do do we 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 do uh, spring gobble counts prior to the spring season. Um, we've done those for a number of years now, um, and then we also collect uh, some information using rural mail carriers. So, mail carriers in rural areas uh, for for decades now we've utilized. Uh, as, as volunteers to record wildlife observations for various species. Uh, we added turkey to that a few years ago now, uh, I think maybe four, four years ago. Um, and and we're, that's, that sort of survey has been used to document squirrel populations in the past and, and pheasant populations, quail populations. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's, it's a really valuable resource. but. But principally, spring harvest is, is, is what we use to, to track our, our population trends in the state. And, okay. And we've been fairly stable since uh, 2000, which is the same time that spring harvest was opened in all 88 counties in the state. Um, so we, we trend right around 19,000 spring birds harvested, and uh, we generally jump up and down around that average and that variation, that year-to-year variation, is largely explained um, by by the nesting success of the previous couple of years. So, so if you have a bad bad nesting year, you can probably expect spring harvest, and, and we would assume the general population to be down uh, over the next couple of years. Okay. And what what causes a bad nesting season? It's principally weather. Uh, I mean, there are certainly other uh, things that can, other factors that that play a part. You know, predator numbers uh, and habitat availability, which of course influences predation. But uh, generally speaking, uh, good weather conditions. If we have a nice mild spring into into summer, uh, those are good conditions for for nesting birds, particularly ground nesting birds. If you get any serious deviation from from the norm, so uh, that can include uh, cold weather, hot weather, 
extremely wet weather, which unfortunately we're experiencing this spring. Yeah. Uh, all of those things can can negatively impact uh, nest success. Uh, and then and then also as as young poults emerge as they hatch, uh, those weather events can can impact their survival as well. Hmm. Okay. Jeff, any questions before I continue? I don't think at this point, no. Okay. So we talked about sort of the the metrics you guys are looking at, spring harvest being sort of a good indice for for population. I guess what is the – why is there a spring and a fall season? Yeah, yeah, good question. So I mentioned in that long history of, of our turkey reintroduction that uh, sort of the fall-winter season was the traditional turkey season in Ohio at that time, and, and actually in many other states. Um, it, it's kind of a more recent thing, uh, only since the modern era of turkey hunting in Ohio, that, that spring has been king in terms of, of hunting popularity. So, of course, a big part of that is the, the breeding chronology of the birds. So spring breeding leads to summer nesting. Um, and so that, that stereotypical or that, that uh, real typical exciting spring hunt that you think of, you're capitalizing on, on the birds' breeding behavior, the male birds uh, displaying, gobbling, uh, not only to females but to rival males. So hunters are out there capitalizing on on those males' behavior and and, and taking those gobblers during that spring season. The fall season um, is just an additional opportunity. In some states, it's a much more popular season than than in Ohio. Uh, really, in Ohio, where we expect we have uh, sixty to seventy thousand spring hunters, we really only have about uh, ten to twelve thousand fall hunters that participate in Ohio. So. That fall season in Ohio is, is much less popular, uh, but we still have a, a fair number of, of folks that are utilizing that opportunity. So we've had a fall season since the mid-90s. Uh, we've had a spring season, at least in some counties, since uh, the mid-60s. Um, and, and there's we can get into the biology of that if you want, Why how, how one differs from another, uh, but they're just two unique turkey hunting opportunities uh, that that our population is able to sustain at, at current levels. Okay. And so th- this is a theory I have, and I don't know if you guys have any data around this, but do you, are, are the fall turkey hunters specifically targeting turkeys, or is it a I'm going to buy a fall turkey tag because if I'm out there bow hunting and a turkey walks by, I'll have a tag? You know the, yeah. the sort of data on that. Yeah, good theory. Um, so uh, we have some data, but it's not really direct. You know, we don't specifically ask, uh, "Hey, are you out there deer hunting?" And you're right, going okay. to shoot a turkey if you see one. Right. Um, we have we have discussed. Hey, we probably need to just go ahead and take this step and ask folks directly. We traditionally have just not had a fall turkey, uh, a postseason hunter survey like we have in the spring. Um, but some information to, to support your theory, um, bow harvest in the fall 
is, is way higher than what we see in the spring. Um, crossbow harvest is anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of the total. Um, and then vertical bow, compound, and then longbow is roughly 15 percent of the total harvest. So you're talking just shy of, of half of the birds taken in the fall are by bow hunters. Um, compare that to the spring where it's only a, a, a small percentage, a very small percentage. It's, it's, I can't recall off the top of my head at the moment. Um, so in my opinion, that that lead, that uh, pretty strongly supports your theory that a lot of these folks are opportunistic turkey hunters. Um, mm-hmm. They're they're probably very avid bow hunters for deer, and and they they happen to see turkey or they know they're going to encounter turkey in the area they're they're bow hunting deer, and uh, that's just an additional opportunity that they take advantage of. Now that said, there are a fair number of of avid fall turkey hunters um, uh, using dogs and, and, and calls and, and bringing, busting up the flock and then bringing those birds back in. Um, and more of, the, more of the traditional turkey hunt, of course, the fall hunt, uh, the use of dogs is legal, and it's a, it's a really unique hunt. I've never experienced it, but I, uh, what I've heard about it, it just sounds like a very exciting hunt. So I had no idea that you could use dogs on a fall hunt. So that just kind of blew my mind. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, again, to have it explained to you, I'm sure is it, it, uh, nowhere near experiencing it. But the folks that I know that do it, uh, they identify an area with a, a large fall winter flock of birds. Um, they use the dog. Those that I'm aware of are, are some variation of an upland bird dog breed. Um, they release that dog. Uh, it busts up the flock. I mean, moves every bird in a different direction. Right. Um, and then they, that dog, as I understand it, waits for the hunter uh, to arrive on the location where the flock was busted up. Um, often the dog sits with the hunter which blows my mind. I'm an upland bird hunter, and, and I've got English setters, and the, the idea of getting one of those things to sit still, <laughs> still right. enough that it's not going to be picked up by a turkey just blows my mind. So these must be some tremendously well-trained dogs. Uh, but after the flock is busted up, the hunter sits, and then it's almost your traditional spring hunt where the hunter is, is calling in those birds, um, you know, just using a contact call, hey, let's reassemble. And then uh, brings birds brings birds in that way and and, and takes a bird. And even without dog, because I've not participated in the fall turkey hunt, but my understanding is even without dogs, that's kind of the tactic, right? You're trying to that that sort of assembly call, like, hey, I'm over here, everybody come this way. Versus in the spring, like you mentioned, you're it's like the turkey rut, right? You're taking advantage of that breeding season and those vocalizations and things, right? Correct. Yeah, that's right. Okay. All right. So I guess that's a good uh, – did you give a sort of breakdown of – I know you gave, you know, spring numbers. Did you say how many turkeys are taken in the fall season? Uh, the fall harvest, I, I think I maybe said permit numbers, and we didn't talk too much about, uh, or I didn't get into the, the harvest total. So um, spring, we typically issue around 65,000 permits and, and kill about 19,000 birds 
on average. And in the fall, we issue uh, around 11,000 permits as a typical year. Um, but the harvest is only, it's typically less than 2,000 birds. The harvest rate is, is lower okay. in the fall, certainly. Do you know how that compares to surrounding states? Like, are, are Ohio hunters more efficient than the surrounding states or about the same? Are those numbers sort of on par with other states? Our spring success rates are, are on par with surrounding states. Um, fall, I'm not sure. Fall okay. is sort of a, a unique season, uh, and, and the variation that we see in fall harvest, at least in Ohio, um, we can't. We don't always have a good explanation for it. where I've said, uh, you know, spring harvest really seems to trend well with our understanding of, of the number of birds out on the landscape. The fall harvest uh, seems to sort of deviate from that at times, where we we know we've got a, based on our other indices, we we feel like we feel confidently that we've got a good number of birds out there, and then for whatever reason, we'll we'll have a pretty low fall harvest that year or could uh, and and there's not as much of an explanation there my my best explanation would would again point back to your theory that there's a lot of opportunistic hunting out there sure uh, the harvest or uh, the hunting effort i should say is not as consistent in the fall where we've got a dedicated group of spring hunters uh, and a big dedicated group of spring hunters that are reliably going to pursue turkeys in the spring and, and and pretty consistently put pressure on that on that population and harvest uh, a number somewhat commensurate with the number of birds out on the landscape. Okay. And I guess to back up a little bit, you know, you said the uh, the spring harvest is a good indice for population. How did you or how do you correlate that to actual turkey population? Right? Because I'm assuming at some point you would have had to say. Yep, if we're getting, you know, 16,000 harvest and it goes down when we actually count turkeys or or however you're you're doing that, it sort of matches that population trend. Harvest numbers sort of mimic or mirror um actual turkey numbers. Yeah, yeah, good question. Um so with any index, uh, you're not really you're never really saying, "Hey, here's how many turkeys are out there," uh, and, I, and that's that's tough for a lot of people to to embrace. That how do you, what do you mean you don't know how many turkeys are out there? Uh, so with any any index, whether it's a gobbling index or uh, or a har- spring harvest numbers or so forth, it's it's more of a comparison to previous years and what those levels are. There are some ways we can get some coarse estimates of, of the total population of turkeys. A good rule of thumb um, that, that's got some evidence in, in, in turkey research is um, at least at, at harvest rates from, from a previous decade, uh, you can estimate that your total turkey population is roughly, uh, uh, or excuse me, your spring harvest total is roughly 10% of your total turkey uh, population. So uh, a harvest of 20,000 birds, you can estimate you probably have a population of of roughly 200,000 birds. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So we 
we put some feelers out to our our audience about you know what kind of questions um, they would have about turkeys for you, and uh, sort of overwhelmingly, people wanted to know how are the season dates determined because there seems to be a a feeling out there that the seasons are maybe too late, like the birds are done gobbling you know, before season comes in or shortly after season starts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh that's not terribly surprising. That's a that's a common uh comment, uh I'll I'll say. Okay. Uh, when our spring seasons arrive. So so first, uh you know, let me just say the goal of our spring regulations are to maximize hunter opportunity to take a gobbler. But because that season is occurring during the reproductive period for the bird we we have to minimize the risk to nesting hens at the same time. So it's those regulations are you're trying to strike a balance between that hunter opportunity uh, and, and protecting the reproductive potential of the resource. Sure. So I'm I'm building up to uh, you know proper timing in the spring season is is absolutely critical in management of, of wild turkey um, because you've got nesting occurring. At that time, so the rule uh, in in what was the statewide season prior to 2017, and what is now the South Zone, which encompasses most of the state, is it's the season opens on the Monday closest to April 21st, and that's been again the rule for for quite a while now. Uh, so when we had a, a statewide season, that was the rule statewide. That date is based on nesting studies that were done in southeast Ohio in the early 2000s, and, and the researchers there, uh, uh, one still with the, the Division of Wildlife and, and uh, Mike Reynolds and Dave Swanson now, I believe, is teaching at Hawking College down in southeast Ohio. Uh, they identified the median incubation date for wild turkeys in southeast Ohio as May 1st. That median date, that's the median date that, that wild turkeys have initiated incubation of eggs. They're sitting on, on their nests, warming those eggs, and starting that 28-day process of, of getting those eggs to hatch. So um, with that, again, striking a balance between hunter opportunity, who hunters, they're, they're chomping at the bit to get out there during the spring season. They want to be out there earlier. But the trouble you have is is the earlier in the season the hunt, that hunting occurs, the more disruptive it can be to those not only not only the fertilization of hens, which is very imper- important. You've got to have males out there to fertilize those females. Uh, but the more disruptive it is to those hen- nesting hens. So by by utilizing the date of Monday closest to April 21st, uh, we estimated that that uh, Almost half of our hens have at least initiated laying at that point uh, when the season's going to start. And by the midpoint of the season, you've got uh, close to 90% of your hens incubating. Um, Now, hunters are well aware birds are gobbling prior to that. Birds start gobbling almost as soon as winter breaks. Uh, That doesn't mean the hens are receptive and and birds are still likely flocked up. Um, But we try to put that season at a point where gobbling activity is still very high, and it is uh, at, at the point. And actually what, what we hope to get is 
a good number of hens are bred and move off to start their nest. And then gobbling activity actually can pick up at that point, and those gobblers no longer have hens tying them up, and they're more receptive to the hunter would be the idea. Okay. Um, so, so it also brings up an interesting point. You mentioned that as the season starts, gobbling activity, it seems like it drops. It does. Uh, number one, you're taking those mature males out of the population on opening day. Opening day harvest is always the, the biggest day of the season. So you've got birds that are, you know, the, those active gobblers are coming out of the population. But then also there's pretty good evidence that hunting activity, pressure from hunters, causes birds to shut up. They, they just stop gobbling uh, to some degree. So at any point that the season starts, you could expect the gobbling activity to decrease. And it almost gives the illusion of, well, they started the season as the gobbling was ending. Uh, whereas, potentially, if that season were later, that gobbling, that high gobbling activity would continue until that season starts. And then, of course, it's going to start to decrease. Interesting. That's, uh, I'm so glad we're having this conversation because, like, a lot of that is, is not things that I had even thought about, right? And so, just sort of, Hearing it from a biologist's point of view is always helpful, I know for me at least, to, you know, to kind of get that that biology, that science behind it and go, you know, they're not just throwing a dart at a calendar. Like, <laughs> there's thought behind it. And, and, and often, you know, when I get that call from the upset hunter, uh, especially when that, the calendar shifts, so as I mentioned, the rule for the south zone is the Monday closest to April 21st, and that's based on research in southeast Ohio. The rule for the northeast zone is the Monday closest to May 1st, and that's based on a study done in northeast Ohio very recently. Um, and that's how we ended up with the two different zones. But anyway, when I get that call from that angry hunter, typically it's a, in a year where that Monday closest to April 21st rolls back. Uh, you know, just due to the to how the calendar fell that year. Right. And I get the call and they say, oh, you're pushing the season back. You know, last year it was on this date and this year it's on this date, which is, you know, seven days later. And I have to say, well, you know, the rule is Monday closest to April 21st. You can, you know, you can plan that out year after year. <laughs> right. right. the rule. And, and you look at the calendar and you see it'll jump around. And uh, unfortunately, yeah, it's, there's not a lot of people that are aware that that uh, that's how those seasons are set. And and most hunters, you know, when you explain the importance of protecting nesting hens, uh, they're they're completely on board with that. They understand. Now you get that odd hunter every once in a while that'll tell you, "Well, I don't shoot hens, so why should you know? Why should we have to worry about protecting hens?" And and you do have to remind them that just your presence out there, you know, if you get out there and you and you bust a hen off of a nest, there's always a potential, the potential that that hen's going to abandon that nest uh, and potentially impact reproduction in that in that region. That's okay. Because I was going to ask, like, what is the what is the potential threat to the nesting hens? But it, so it sounds like just disrupting them off the nest, they may abandon the nest. Or maybe just having guys in the woods maybe forces them to choose an inferior nesting location. Is that no, a possibility? It's, it's a little bit of all of the above. And then there's okay. there's incidental or excuse me, you know, unintentional 
and even illegal harvest occurring too, to some small degree. Uh, there's there's a fair amount of research suggesting that just simply the amount of, of uh, interaction that hunters and hens have can increase the number of hens unintentionally and illegally taken by hunters. Okay. Um, so it's a small number, but you want to try to minimize the interactions. And, and hens become really secretive as they establish a nest, and they're and they're not uh, as likely to be encountered later in the nesting season as they start incubation and so forth. So, so the timing of the season is is, is uh, really key in in protecting hens from all sorts of disturbance, including uh, including mortality associated with with hunting. So that that brings up a question. So we went down to Southeast Ohio turkey hunting the first weekend of season. And uh, my brother basically flushed a turkey like you would, like, I wasn't there, but he said, you know, we almost stepped on the thing before it took, they didn't know it was there. So could that have been a a hen that was already incubating, was already on a nest, and that's why she held so tight? There's a very good chance. So any time I encounter a bird like that, whether it's, I mean, it could be an American woodcock or a grouse or a, a turkey, um, a duck of various species. If they if they ha- have that real odd behavior where they 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 held tight until you were almost on top of them, uh, that's especially in the spring. Of course, in the spring at this time of year, sure. Um, that's a good indicator that there's a nest either there or very nearby. Now I've run into that where I thought, why did that turkey let me walk right up on on her? Um, and then I'll look around and I'll find their nest, and sometimes I wonder if they're not coming off the nest and, and trying to sneak away from me, and I just end up on top of her, and she's got to go. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Got to flush at that point. But that's a really good uh, indicator if, if that bird lets you get that close that she, she's got a nest there or very nearby, and she was hesitant to leave until she felt like she absolutely had to. Sure. So our, I guess, sort of more biology, turkey biology, our turkey, I don't even know how, to, how I want to phrase this. Are they, are they not like deer in the sense that the does come into estrus, and if they don't get bred that first time, they will come back into estrus? Are, are turkeys like you got one shot, or how does their sort of breeding cycle work? Yeah, yeah, good question. So, so turkey uh, hens can actually store sperm for a time. Don't ask me the exact period of time. Uh, so they may breed multiple times uh, prior to nesting, and then they are essentially the, their laying period. They typically lay around 12 eggs, anywhere from 8 to 16. Um, but that 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 one breeding event. Um, where, again, they might breed multiple times during that event, uh, they are, in essence, fertilized for that entire laying period. And then even if they were to lose that nest early in the, in the laying process, uh, they would, they, it would not be necessary in, in all cases for them to breed again and, and lay fertile eggs for a second nest. Now, they may very well go off and breed again anyway, um, but, but it's not necessary for them. So they... Uh, unlike a lot of mammals, 
they are able to store sperm for, for a period of time to, to sort of get them through that laying, that extended laying process. Sure. Okay. So I want to jump back to we were talking about the, the two different zones a little bit. And, you know, you mentioned there was a another study done in the Northeast, which is how you came up with the later start date, later later season open. But how did you determine where the line was? Right, yeah. Uh, so, uh, well, I'll start that with that was actually the biologist before me. Uh, so I'm, I'm working off of, you know, work that he did. Uh, mm-hmm. Ken Duren, now with the Pennsylvania Game Commission, I'll give him credit. Uh, where it's certainly due. Uh, so that's a that's a it's a really neat example of uh, how hunters and the state agency and the science behind regulation setting all came together. If you'll indulge me for a minute, sure. Uh, so that that northeast corner of the state gets heavy snowfall through the winter, uh, sometimes as much as four times the state average, and that's all coming, that's lake effect off of Lake Erie. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the state agency, the Division of Wildlife, was uh, for a number of years receiving a lot of complaints from hunters in that part of the state that things were a little bit delayed up there, and largely due to the amount of snowfall and the severity of winter, uh, there was concern that hens, their body condition was, was less than uh, what would, we would find in the rest of the state. Not to mention hunting conditions, you know, they may very well have snow at the start uh, on that Monday closest to April 21st. Right. Uh, so we were getting a lot of complaints from hunters um, that they, they'd like to see a later season in that part of the state. Um, so so we did a nesting study. The Division of Wildlife did a nesting study uh, in, co- in cooperation with a number of partners, principally the National Wild Turkey Federation, uh, the, the state board, um, gave uh, several thousand dollars for the purchase of, of telemetry equipment to put on hens in northeast Ohio, and then the Division of Wildlife uh, supplied the rest of the funds for that study. Uh, in all, I think we marked nearly 30 hens uh, over a two-year period in, in that northeast corner. Most of the hens, I think, were in Ashtabula and Geauga counties. Um, we did find through that study that nesting was occurring roughly two weeks later than what had been identified in southeast Ohio. So that southeast Ohio study had set the season for the entire state, and then we hadn't really revisited that until this northeast Ohio nesting study. And, and it did show what the hunters, many of the hunters were claiming, that nesting was occurring later. So we had a, not only our support, we had support from hunters in that region, um, but we had the biological data to show, yes, this is this is uh, a later nesting period in this part of the state, likely for these reasons, the heavy snowfall and other conditions. Um, so in, in uh, 2017 was the first year for that northeast Ohio zone. Now, your question was specifically about how that line was drawn. We did, we looked at this sort of what is identified as the snow belt region, so what counties are heavily impacted by that high snowfall. And of course, it doesn't fall right on county lines, but we tried to grab the the five counties that were most heavily impacted by that heavy snowfall and likely had this comparable nesting chronology. Um, And then we also looked at public ground. There was uh, some concern about uh, if if we have this offset date and we split public property or 
or uh, put a substantial amount of public property on one side or the other, that we might create this situation where an area is overburdened or, uh, you know, it, it would be a less than ideal situation if we were to split a wildlife area in two and have uh, you know, one portion in one season and another yeah. portion in another season. So all right. of those things and kind of came in came together, uh, as I understand it, to identify this five-county northeast zone uh, that has a, as I mentioned, a, a opening date on the Monday closest to May first. Okay. So, I guess along those lines, or not along the lines of the northeast zone, but sort of continuing in this thread of of sort of why things are the way they are in Ohio. The the noon end time, where did that come from? Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> another good question, and a common one from that I get from hunters. Um, so early in Ohio's spring season, we had that noon closure uh, throughout the entirety of the season, and that's a regulation that you'll still find in a lot of states surrounding Ohio. Um, the 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 basis for it. Uh, for a midday closure to shooting hours is, again, to uh, protect hens, uh, largely because of nesting hens are more more likely to leave their nest in the afternoon. Uh, so in the warmer hours of the afternoon, they, they can leave the nest, uh, handle their business, get a little water, a little food. Um, Again, as I said, in the warmer hours when those nests or when those eggs aren't going to chill and so forth. Mm-hmm. So again, you've got that situation where in the afternoon hours, hunters are more likely to encounter those hens, those nesting hens. Uh, so this regulation has always sort of been a, a protection of sorts uh, for for those nesting hens. Now that said, the the impact of this regulation on hen mortality is, is not really known. We don't have, you know, great data to show this regulation is is, is important because this number of hens are going to be killed or, or are going to be disturbed and, and nest lost uh, because of this regulation. And so it's often challenged, mm-hmm. um, and we do see some states that Indiana and Michigan both uh, – have all-day hunting throughout the season, but they they also have some more restrictive regulations than Ohio. That both of those states have a one-bird season bag limit, as an example. Um, so we had we did make a change recently. You're probably aware this was the first season that the noon closure only extended through the first week. Um, a decision was made a, a few years ago to sort of expand the opportunity for all-day hunting. Um, we wanted to ease into that uh, because, again, you, you, we're so, as a biologist, you're somewhat hesitant to just sort of open the floodgates and say, okay, let's turkey numbers are good, let's have at them. Sure. And then you've got to roll that back if you if you uh, notice that you're having some sort of negative impact. And it can be difficult once you give opportunity to the hunters. It can be difficult to pull that away from them, as you yep. might imagine. Yep. So, mm-hmm. All right. So we've got the noon closure for the first week to this point, and, and opening uh, on the second week, you can hunt all day uh, for the last three weeks. So that'll make for sort of an interesting data point then going forward, right? You, you, you should then be able to look at the effect of that change from one year to the next. 
You can, yes. Uh, and we, uh, I should have pointed out, in 2010 uh, is the first time that we we went from uh, a noon closure all day, or excuse me, a noon closure uh, throughout the four weeks of the season. In 2010, we made it all day hunting for the last two weeks. You may remember that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was what the statewide season operated under since 2010. Uh, so then again, this year was the first where instead of the last two weeks, it's the last three weeks. Okay. Um, and in 2000, I bring that up because in 2010 we did look at harvest trends and, and really didn't notice any major changes. There were hunters that took advantage of those afternoon hunts. Um, it's difficult to say because we don't have any sort of control. Uh, you know, there were no counties, for example, that we said, okay, you're going to keep the old regulation, and these counties are going to get the new regulation. Oh, right, yeah. We can't really, <laughs> we don't really have any way to say, here's what the regulation did, uh, because everybody changed. Every county changed over to the new regulation. So we'll have a comparable situation after this year. You know, I'll, I'll probably look at, we've got the time of harvest uh, from all of the Czech turkeys, and uh, I'll probably look pretty closely at, at uh the time of day that a number of turkeys were taken, and, and we'll try to make some comparisons. But it seems unlikely that we're going to see anything, any, anything major, anything that's going to jump out of, at us sure. uh, because, again, we don't have that control. And I don't know, I don't know if you have the numbers in front of you, but could, I guess one thing that I would be interested to look into after this, sort of thinking back to that 2010 time frame, would be, you know, you talked about, like, nest disruption from hunters being in the woods in the afternoon or or um, hen disruption, I guess, if you will. If if they were losing nests and therefore not producing new turkeys, you, I guess you could have seen there was a potential to see a decrease in harvest, right, if that's our index of population, in the in the years following that sort of saying, yep, they, the hunters being in the woods in the afternoon did have an effect because we didn't didn't produce as many pults that spring because of hen disruption, and in the following years we saw re- reduced harvest numbers. Yeah, yeah, I mean, ideally that, that would be how we would uh, sort of look at that data. Unfortunately, a lot of the data that we have that we that we utilize is too coarse uh, to mm. sort of look at, at that fine a scale. Okay. Not to mention, uh, so our we do have a reproductive index, index which I failed to mention earlier when you asked about our, our turkey uh, in population indices. So we do ask members of the public to report sightings of turkey hens and with poults uh, during the summer months. They can report that on the division's website, wildohio.gov, during the months of uh, June, July, and August. And then we use that to develop a a reproductive index, the number of poults per hen for that year. Um, And that's our our sort of way of gauging how reproduction was that year. The trouble we have is that's such a coarse measurement that you can't really use that to look at the pre-2010 years and the post-2010 years and say, okay, it was likely this regulation change that had this impact on, on poult numbers. 
not to mention there's a lot of other factors at play there, you know, weather conditions during those times. Um, there's also just the change in, in, in the presumed change in wild turkey breeding activity uh, through the sort of the establishment phase as we were, you know, as, as turkeys were occupying new areas and, and colonizing parts of Ohio they'd not been in before, we saw these tremendously high poult numbers. And there can be a variety of reasons for that. You know, it's sort of that, just that colonizing effect where, you know, we're occupying new places, breeding activity is, is, a, is very high, um, and, and reproduction is very high. And then you reach sort of this point of stability, which we're likely at now, um, I mentioned we've had fairly stable numbers since 2000 where we've seen poult numbers, poults per hen, kind of drop off and, and hit more of a stable level where they're likely maintaining their numbers. Um, and there can be a lot of explanations for that. You know, as I mentioned, they've occupied a lot of the available habitat within the state. Maybe predators now are catching on to these new new birds on the landscape. Hey, those are turkeys and they're prey items. Uh, so... So it's a neat sort of biological phenomenon, and you can kind of see that in other states too, where reproduction is at a really high pace through this this uh, reestablishment phase, and then sort of stabilizes, if not even decreases a little bit. Okay. And what is so that reproduction rate? I think I read somewhere that like uh, a reproduction index of of two like two poults to one hen is like a stable would be would result in like a stable population is that is that right is that what that you guys would use be a little bit on, a little bit on our low side so okay. our typical average is 2.2 to 2.3 poults per hen statewide um and you can see considerable variation in that number regionally within the state but on a county to county basis it, it, that we don't have sufficient data to really give a, a a county index, um, just due to the low number of reports that come in. But yeah, you heard it on the head. Uh, if we get below two, that's a poor reproductive year. And unfortunately, we've had two years in a row below two. Uh, 2017 and 2018 were both uh, just below two poults per hen. Mm. Okay. Do you do you guys report those numbers anywhere that where you know people could go and see like oh 2018 was a low reproduction year or is that yeah, internal data so, again most of that information goes right onto our website and if you go to uh if you navigate to our website wildohio.gov and then go into the, the uh, uh sort of species information my recommendation would be just search Wild Turkey, Ohio Division of Wildlife, and one of the top links that's going to come up is the Wild Turkey page. You click on that, and then underneath that, you'll see some tabs with various information about wild turkey or whatever species page you're on. Go to the Research and Surveys tab. Okay. And and within that, for wild turkey, you're going to see not only our spring harvest numbers from 1966 to present present season, but you're going to see a, a, a figure with um, the, the pulse per hen, I think, going back to the mid-90s. Okay. So you can see those trends okay. year to year. We'll, uh, we'll track that down and put a link to that in the show notes so that the listeners can, yeah. can find that easily. That'll be interesting. Yeah. So um, is there – because right now bag limits are – statewide bag limits, right? So is there is there any 
thought or discussion about going to county bag limits for turkeys? Uh, not presently, and I, I, had, I do receive this question occasionally as well. You know, why, why with deer do we see these county-based uh, bag limits? Uh, and prior to that, sort of more zone-based bag limits, but also including county. But then with wild turkey, uh, even though we've got that same sort of uh, variation in abundance across the state, why do we have the statewide bag? Um, and largely, you know, for wild turkey bag limits, they're not a major impact on on the harvest level. Um, in Ohio, of course, you can take two birds per season, one per day, and really that bag limit, in effect, it, it restricts the act activities of the most efficient and effective hunters. You know, the hunters that could go out there and, and kill four birds, five birds, if they wanted to, you're restricting those hunters. Um, it, our typical permit success rate is in the range of 22 to 23%. Um, last year was a really good year, and it jumped up to about 30 for most of our permit types. Um, that was we can talk about why that happened as well. That's sort of a unique situation with a, a periodical cicada emergence. But uh, in effect, you've got roughly 22% of your of your permit buyers that, that take a bird, and then an even smaller proportion of those, um, only a few thousand, are taking a second bird. So that that season bag limit is only impacting a small number of hunters. I'm sure right, okay. you, I know you've had Mike Konkovich on to talk about deer. It's it's a very similar situation where the bag limit is is uh, while people look at that and say, well, how can you let all the you know this many hunters take two birds? Well, they're really not. Uh, you've got to look at the success rate and how many people are really impacted by that bag limit. Uh, right. So. I, I I may have danced around your question there, um, but but it, it also you know I get the question well, why in the the counties with, with smaller wild turkey populations why don't you have a reduced bag limit in those areas? Well, it's it's even less likely that those people are going to be able to take a bird, let alone two birds, in those low population counties. Um, and then with that, uh, it, with spring hunting you're taking males out of the population. If you recall, you know, the 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 purpose of the or the, the goal of the spring season was to promote gobbler harvest but protect nesting and reproduction. Right. You're not taking those hens out of the out of the population, you're not impacting reproduction at all or, or you're having negligible impact, we'll say. Um so taking two birds out of even a, a, a county with a low, fairly low population, you're still not having impact. We hope if our if our season is set right, the hens in that area have already been bred, and many of them may have initiated nests. They're going to produce just as many young turkeys as they would if there were no season in that area. Okay. Now, what what the bag limit and what the spring season does do is eliminates adult males from the population. Uh, so so that is the the population impact that you see. Uh, you know, ma- adult males have pretty high survival rates, just in looking at natural mortality, predation rates, and and, and so forth. So so that, that gobbler you take during the spring season, you know, that's one less gobbler that was going to be, that would be in that population the next year, in essence. 
So right. that's the impact of the spring season is you're reducing the number of mature males. Okay. But not impacting reproduction. Right. Yeah, yeah. Along that same vein, um, why in Ohio is the uh, determining factor for a legal bird uh, the presence or absence of a beard instead of being a tom? You know, some states say only toms and you can't even take Jake. Some say male birds. Um, Ohio is the presence of a beard. It has to be a bearded bird. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, another good question. And and I was not around when this regulation was set. So uh, as I understand it is how I'll preface my answer. Um, the presence of a beard gives a physical characteristic for a hunter to key in on and say, this is a legal bird. And I say that there's there's a variety of, of hunter experience levels and, and ability to identify. You know, this is definitely a male bird. This is definitely a female bird. Um, and and then biologically, there can be, you know, you might have a female that comes in and, and struts. Uh, and, and females are even capable of gobbling. Um, it, it doesn't happen often, but if that were to occur and, and sort of fool a hunter, I suppose, um, you could have a situation where, where you set a hunter up for, for uh, in essence, breaking the law, possibly mm-hmm. unintentionally. So, again, that beard gives a uh, the presence of beard gives a physical characteristic. You know, males have the beards, and then a small number of females, a very small number, uh, you know, a percentage or two. Uh, right. So, so while those females then become legal to harvest, uh, it's it's a number that doesn't impact the population on a whole on the whole yeah. so so again uh where you could have a hunter get confused we'll say if you say you can only harvest male birds uh there should be much less confusion with the presence of that beard either you saw a beard or you did not and that will generally put put that bird you're looking at in the category of male or female with with some uh, uh Females lumped in there. Mm-hmm. So the presence of a beard, um, to your knowledge, is it any indicator of how successful of a breeder that hen is? You know, I've I've heard people say that you know bearded hens are you know old and they're not they're not good at breeding anymore. So it's good to get them out of the population. To your knowledge, is any of that true? I'm not aware of any anything like that. I have heard those those things before, those comments before, and mainly, you know, just sort of, uh, uh, we'll say, uh, coffee shop talk. Uh, you know, nothing mm-hmm. that's, that I've I've heard and found it in research or science. I've, bearded hens are certainly capable of nesting, um, and do. I'm not aware of any difference between a bearded hen and a, a hen without a beard in terms of reproductive potential. Okay. All right. Well, we've uh, taken a lot of your time here. And uh, so any kind of closing thoughts, anything that uh, we didn't cover that you wanted to touch on? Oh, boy. I feel like I talked a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I probably had some longer answers than than you wanted on some of those. No, no. This was perfect. I I hope you got to the questions that you wanted to. Definitely, I would just yeah. Say, uh, 
I encourage anybody that's got questions or concerns uh, about the spring season, the fall season, regulations in general, uh, contact us. You know, get a hold of the Division of Wildlife through various means. Uh, you know, there's, there's of course, our website that I mentioned, or you can get a hold of district offices in, in all corners of the state. Um, call uh, 1-800-WILDLIFE and get our, our call center here in Columbus and, and you know, let them know what your question is, what your concern is, and they're going to direct you to the, the appropriate folks. Uh, for turkey season, it'll likely be me. Um, you know, give me your question, give me your, your comment or concern, and, and we'll try to work through it. Um, I guess that's all I would say. Okay. Um, I've got a note written down here. I want to circle back. You piqued my interest with the the cicada comment. So can you oh, sort of yeah. expand on that? <laughs> Certainly. Before I let you yeah. go, because I know I know I, we'd have hung up the call and I'd have kicked myself <laughs> for not asking that question. Yeah, I can't believe that I didn't. Uh, uh, again, we, we talked too long about the. I talked too long about some of those other topics. So, so we've got this unique event. Uh, it's not just Ohio, but the the eastern forests across North America. Uh, periodical cicada emergences, and, and these are 17-year and 13-year uh, cicada. So, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar, they're, they're commonly called locusts and, and other things, but the the proper name is cicada. Um, there are annual cicada that come out every year or every couple of years, but this really unique event is every 17 years, every 13 years. So we had one in, in 2016, and it covered most of eastern Ohio, and the folks that are in that range are well aware of what I'm talking about. It was mm -hmm. probably just deafening, uh, the, the number of cicada that were out during the summer of 2016. Well, what that does for wild turkey is is really neat. Um, the cicada are out right about the time poults uh, have hatched and are big enough to go and chase and gobble down these, these big protein and fat morsels that are just covering the landscape. Um, so what you get is uh, extremely well-fed poults. You know, that's a time when they really need insects for protein and, and uh, nutrition. So the poults are extremely well-fed, um, as are their predators. So predators of, of young poults, and, you know, everything from avian predators to mammalian pre predators, uh, even probably you know snakes and, and, and other things that might take a poult if they had a chance, uh, they're all consuming cicada because they're readily available and super abundant. Um, and as best we can guess, it's it's really tough to study a 17-year event, you know, something that might only happen once during your entire career. Right. As a wildlife professional, as best we can guess, you know the combination of these poults being extremely well fed and their predators being extremely well fed, uh, they jump up into you know uh, adulthood in good number. Their survival is extremely high. Poults, uh, turkey poults, I mean, um, and we get sort of this wave of, of uh, turkeys within that cicada range. And you typically don't see the impacts of that until two years after the cicada event. And you probably can put together why that happens. Uh, you get a lot of people that pass on jakes in the first year. So, again, we had this, this great, this big wave of birds produced in 2016. 
in 2017, we did see, we saw, uh, so the year after the event, we saw harvest come up a little bit. Um, and, and a lot of those birds were jakes produced during that year in eastern Ohio. Uh, but it's two years after the cicada event that the harvest really shoots up. So that was last year, uh, 2018, two years removed from, from the cicada event. Uh, eastern Ohio had a really, really good turkey numbers. And we actually had our third highest harvest on record uh, last year, two years after the cicada event. What's interesting is you can look at the total harvest numbers, those of you that go to the, the turkey page we mentioned and look at the research section, you'll see these spikes in harvest every couple of, you know, every, well, we'll say, seven, eight years or so. Those are other cicada emergences. And you can actually see the, the highest harvest we have on record was uh, 2001, 26,000 birds, and that was 17 years prior to last year's harvest. So it's the same brood of cicada that emerge every 17 years, and that impacted our 2001 harvest, and then it impacted our 2018 harvest. Uh, so it's a it's a really neat event, and folks are going to be really frustrated that I brought it up if they weren't aware of it already, because we've <laughs> got to wait 17 years. <laughs> right, right. For the next one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, there is a Southwest Ohio event, and that impacted our, our 2010 harvest. So it was a, it was a 2008 emergence that impacted the 2010 harvest. Uh, so we can expect that, uh, in a little while, a little while down the road for those of you that hunt Southwest Ohio. Well, I'm glad I circled back and asked you that. That, that's super interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a unique event, and it's really neat that, uh, you know, it's not often that, you know, you have something like that and you can do any more than speculate. This is likely what happens. Sure. Uh, but with our spring harvest, we can we can look at it and say, here's a cicada event, here's a cicada event, and there's another one. Uh, it's really neat. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, Jeff, any uh, last questions? So one final question that we were getting from a lot of our uh, listeners was basically does predator populations affect the frequency of turkeys gobbling? Will turkeys stop gobbling if there's higher predators in the area? Oh, boy, that's a, yeah, that's a tough one uh, here at the end. And I don't have... uh I don't have an answer, you know, founded in any sort of or based in any sort of research that I'm aware of. Uh, I would expect that turkeys that, you know, individually encounter a predator are like that's likely to impact their gobbling. Um, but in terms of an area with a generally higher predator prevalence, I don't know if that's going to impact gobbling across the board or not. All right. Well, I want to, we've, we've kept you long enough. I want to thank you for taking time to get on here and, and talk to us. I really appreciate it. I, this is a really good conversation. I know I learned a lot. Hopefully the audience will, will get something out of this. And so I just want to thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been my pleasure. And there you have it. I really want to thank Mark for taking time to talk to us. I really appreciate him giving us some of his time. He's a busy guy. And... Hopefully you guys learned something in that. Hopefully we were able to answer some of the questions you've had. Like I said at the beginning, I know I learned a lot during this episode. 
So hopefully you guys did too, and you got some value out of that. If you're enjoying the show, biggest thing we can ask is share it. Share it with everybody you know. Share it with your hunting buddies. Share it with somebody who uh, might get something out of this. That's the best way you can help us. You can also, if you're interested, leave a review. That's another good way. Make sure you're subscribed to the show. That way you're getting notified of new episodes automatically. And uh, we also have shirts if you want to get some Ohio Huntsman apparel. We have some shirts that say Eat Local on them. Pretty cool. And uh, those are all good ways to uh, sort of help support the show and help us keep bringing episodes like this to you. So with that, I want to thank everybody for listening. Mm -hmm.